Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we speak with Roland Allen, who wrote a superb book on the history of the notebook. Plus, a beautifully designed independent journal from Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about one of my favorite things, and I think it's an essential item for the life of many, The Notebook. Publisher and author Roland Allen wrote a book about that, The Notebook, a history of thinking on paper. From diaries to sketchbooks, the book delves on how the blank book changed the way we think and helped to change the world. Roland stopped by the studio. The book started because of a curiosity about notebooks, and in turn that was because notebooks had come to play quite an important part, I guess, in my life, as they do in lots of people's lives. I started keeping a diary when I was about 28, and that was inspired by my finding my grandfather's old diaries, and he'd died many years before and I didn't know him really but then learning about his very interesting life before the war and things like that made me quite curious about what it would be like to keep my own diary. And then I just started filling notebooks with more and more and more and more stuff and started writing down anything, really, not just what happened to me. And I guess then after a while I started noticing other people's. There are a lot of people like that, as you know. I've seen your notebooks, which are remarkably lively. And therefore... I just became curious about this thing. Everyone seemed to have them, and no one seemed to know anything about them, if you like. And it's interesting that, of course, people say we are in a digital world. I mean, a lot of people have their notes on iPhone, but, I mean, there is still, of course, there is a market for the notebook. I don't think it's dying out, right? Why is that, do you think? Well, lots and lots of answers. I guess if you're doing a straight comparison with, we talk about making notes on our phone and using our phone calendars, things like that. There is definitely a kind of note which is much better made on paper. And they know this now. They've done a lot of research. Actually, interestingly, in Japan, where obviously they're very tech-savvy and they heavy tech users, but also they know a lot about stationery, which I think we'll talk about later. So they've looked at how effective note-taking is when you do it on a screen as opposed to when you do it on physical paper. And it's very clear that you remember things better if you write them down on paper, you process them better if you're analysing them in some way, and therefore you could sort of imply from that it's more creative. Obviously there are times when you're keeping something very simple which you don't need to analyse particularly, like a phone number or address or something, but any time it's getting more complicated, more sophisticated, you're much better off putting it on paper. And that seems to be to do with a couple of things, including the act of handwriting, which is a motor act and a sensory act and therefore involves the brain more than just moving your thumbs. And there's also something to do with our mental maps of ideas. So we're used to the idea of a mental map of places, whether it's just in your home, you know, where you put things in the kitchen or the city you live in. But also, when you write an idea down on paper in a notebook, you also give it a place, and it is then located in that notebook. And when you flick from page to page, you're looking for something and you already have an idea where it is. 
there is a school of thought that if you write something on the screen of an iPad and then flip the screen, turn the page if you like, it's just vanished into the iPad as far as your brain is concerned and your mental map can't then relocate it as easily as you can when you've written it on paper. So yes, there are lots of reasons why I think that paper is definitely here to stay. As I say, particularly I think if you're doing anything creative with ideas, with numbers, with words, it's a really important step to go through. I think so as well. And fascinating looking at the history of it, because I, I got to be honest, Roland, before, you know, reading your book, I had no idea who was the first person to use it. And I think we can kind of give it to the Italians in a way, right? Yeah, it certainly. The, yes and no. Mm -hmm. So uh, definitely in the Arabic or Muslim Islamic world, they were using notebooks earlier than they were in Europe. The problem we have is that very, very few of them have survived. So we don't really know how. In Europe, on the other hand, lots of them have survived. You can date it very precisely. So it's the second half of the 13th century. They start using them in Italy and they start making paper in Italy, which is the first successful paper manufacturer in Christian Europe in about the year 1270 uh, in Fabriano in Italy, where they still make paper. And we can date it quite precisely and we can say exactly what they were using notebooks for then. So I guess it's suitably for Monocle. It's all tied up with business and travel and, and leisure. When did they become kind of, let's say, widely available to people? Because I presume in 1300, I mean, yeah. probably just a certain elite might have that, right? Yeah, it was... Um, That's a really that's a really interesting question, actually. Mm. It depends much more on your geography than your class. Mm. If you lived in Florence, then it was easy. Everyone had access to paper and notebooks, and it wasn't particularly expensive. It was made down the road, and it was really, really widely used. And if you look at Florence back in, say, the 1300s, it's incredibly literate. Nearly everyone, men and women, could read or write up to a point And definitely a lot of people were keeping notebooks at home. You see this from people's wills. Even people who are shoemakers will leave two or three books, and there won't be printed books, will leave two or three books behind them when they die. If you're lucky enough to be in Florence or in one of the Tuscan towns or some other Italian cities, it's a very democratic thing, like nearly everyone will have one. If you go further afield, it changes completely. We know, for instance, a hundred years later when Chaucer was writing about England, very, very few paper notebooks in England at that time because he had to explain to people what a paper notebook was like, what it felt like, which he does in a couple of his poems. So he's evidently talking about something which they're not familiar with. And we know we have very few manuscripts on paper from that period from England. So people were still writing on parchment and parchment at that point or always is really expensive as a material, not very practical. It's quite hard to use parchment and very difficult to make. And if we could move along a, a few years, there's other, an interesting section of the book, what happened in the Netherlands, that the book being used kind of a, as a kind of a social media in a way. Yeah. Yeah, there was the early social media way. Can, can you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, this, this is lovely. I mean, mm. it's some of my favorite notebooks, actually, mm. um, when I came across this. So there's this boom period in education over the course of the 16th century, and particularly in, in the Netherlands and in Holland. People, more and more men, are going to university and studying. 
and universities are springing up all over the Netherlands. And they start to keep these little albums called Alba Amicorum, which means friendship album. And what you would do when you made friends with someone, you would offer them your album quite ceremonially and it would have a blank page for them. And they would put a little motto, a little inscription, they would draw a little picture and dedicate it to you with sincere friendship. And your notebook would fill up with these dedications from everyone you met. And if you traveled and travel was encouraged for education, you would partly use this notebook to introduce yourself to mutual acquaintances and make new friends. And then when you went back home again, you could show it to your parents or whoever and say, look, I met Martin Luther or um, I met such and such a professor. And in that sense, they are very much like Facebook or LinkedIn. This sense of forging a tangible connection between people. And it, it is quite, it is very sincere as well, because these messages are heartfelt in the same way as, you know, Facebook at the same time is a really sincere experience, but also, you know, quite tiring and cynical. And they also start to fill these books with pictures. So again, if you went to a new town, a common thing was to find the local artist and get them to draw a picture of the new town on a page in your notebook. And it would be like a it would be like an Instagram selfie of, you know, yourself on holiday or something like that. You, again, you could take it back and show your friends where you'd been. And if you were an artist in Amsterdam, then people would bug you to draw in their album. So there are some lovely sketches by contemporary Dutch artists, and this was the golden age of Dutch art, in people's notebooks. So they're wonderful little things. Well, let's talk about some other usages for the notebook. I mean, one I can think of is recipes. I mean, literally every single recipe started on a notebook, right? Yeah. And you go back, and again, this is something which happens right at the beginning. When these business people in Florence start taking their notebooks home after a long day at the counting house, one of the things that they start writing down, actually, is, is recipes. Very often they're medicinal recipes, so you'll have a drink to help you with bronchitis or a herbal infusion, which will cure your heartache or your gut ache or whatever it is. And then over time, yeah, there's a great recipe in a, in a Florentine notebook from this point for... Um, it's a mixture of beans and olive oil, and it's very good for impotence. Although you don't eat it, you put it over your testicles. Interesting. <laughs> nice. Over time, recipes get a bit more conventional. And then what you have is, after the first printed recipe books appear, particularly the, I say housewives, but the women who managed homes, or women who managed houses, would start to copy recipes out of printed recipe books. Very often these weren't actually everyday recipes because they just knew how to do that. They knew how to roast a bit of meat or make a, a soup. But it's the fancy things. So from around the 1500s, 1600s, you get these recipe books and they're full of recipes for puddings or things which use new ingredients from the new world. So the first potato recipes, something like that, and blancmange and things which to our minds aren't necessarily too delicious, but for them were, were real surprises and real delicacies. And then that carries on through to the present day. I think quite, I certainly have kept notebooks in my time of recipes, which I like. And I think quite a lot of people do. We must talk here about a brand that we've, we've mentioned already, a Moleskine. I mean, tell us about the importance of Moleskine to the world of notebooks, because it's, it's, it's actually, how, how old is it? I mean, and, and, and how relevant, because I mean, still today, I mean, every major city in the world has a shop. I mean, I have one here, a red one. Um, 
I kind of wanted a yellow one, but I like soft cover. They don't have in yellow yet. <laughs> so if they're listening, hopefully they will do one. <laughs> this is the kind of geeky conversation that yes. uh, notebook people have. Um, yeah, moleskins are really important. I don't think we'd be here having this conversation mm. if it wasn't for moleskins because they came along in first in Italy in 1997. And it's interesting because they weren't produced by a stationary lover, particularly. They weren't produced by anyone who was interested in or had ever made anything like a moleskin. They were produced as a branding exercise for a company which sold T-shirts and things like that because they were looking for a product which expressed the idea of the contemporary nomad. So they wanted something which was a bit creative but was also very portable and which could be associated with writers and artists. And very famously, they picked Bruce Chatwin, Ernest Hemingway, Picasso, Matisse were their first round of sort of posthumous brand ambassadors. So it was a branding exercise from the from the word go, but it just resonated so strongly. And there's a kernel of truth in it as well. All of those people did use notebooks. And, you know, most writers have used notebooks in their time. Most artists use, or every artist, so far as I know, uses a sketchbook in some way. Moleskin, I think, were the first people to consciously play on those notes. And you know, that really is one of the most successful product launches ever. I think the numbers are sensational. The margins of that business you don't see anywhere else apart from Silicon Valley. And then there's a whole ream of imitators, people who do it. So, I mean, I think many people do notebooks now slightly better than Moleskin do. Mm. But then there's this consume. It's mixed up. There's a kind of consumer culture of people who want ones which are leather bound or gold embossed or have gold edges or silk markers. Then you have people who have a more functional aesthetic, but of course the more functional plain ones can often cost twice as much as the fancy ones, etc., etc. So I love it. I love going around a stationery shop and feeling the paper and then deciding that no, it's not quite good enough. <laughs> and sorry to be geeky now, but I mean, I've 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 seen you have two actually uh, notebooks that you brought in. I mean, I mean, one of them is Japanese. I mean, that's a country then also to do a notebook, right? Yeah. In fact, they both are Japanese. One oh, them, both are Japanese. Yeah, one of them is a brand which is so cool, Kokuyo, there you go, Kokuyo, um, a tiny little hardback notebook, really elegant, where I've just made some notes ahead of this conversation. So it's kind of a little bit disposable. Then there's my fat diary, which is sort of 400 pages, and that's made by another Japanese brand called Stalogy, who I really love. And, and they, again, are not cheap, you know, probably twice as expensive as a moleskin and sort of nearly identical, but just not quite identical. I mean, that color is like baby bluish, right? I mean, sorry. If, yeah, I guess ish, it is. Right? Yeah, but it's very, cobalt. very tattered and damaged. This happens with all my notebooks. They start the year looking lovely and then by December there, because I keep one every year, by December they're completely falling apart. So this one looks rather uh, distinguished and bad. And is it soft cover or hard? Yeah, it's cloth. Cloth, I think. yeah. Well, that's even, that's even better. Uh, and of course, we jumped to Moleskine, but there was a time where companies were starting to give notebooks to their kind of customers or special clients as well. What period was that? It started in the 19th century, mm -hmm. and then it really boomed all the way through the 20th. I think a lot of people will remember this. You know, you used to be given, I remember, in fact, you still are if you deal with Chinese companies or Japanese companies. They will give you a calendar at the beginning of the year. And it used to be a diary. So those diaries which I mentioned, which my grandfather had kept, were in fact corporate gifts. 
And they were tiny, but they were very luxurious. They were absolutely packed. The paper was beautiful. They had leather covers. They had gold embossing. They had these little almanacs at the front where in very tiny pages, tiny, tiny print, they had all kinds of useful information like the price of a dog license or public holidays in 20 countries, this sort of information. And these you'd be given at the beginning of the year by whoever wanted you to do business with them. And the companies which sold these lets, for instance, would they produced millions, millions upon millions every year. And the majority must have gone in straight in the bin because they were unwanted gifts, but they were lovely little things. Thank you very much, Roland, and his book, The Notebook, A History of Thinking on Paper, is out now, published by Profile Books. And finally on the show, I had the pleasure to welcome in the studio the founders of Peer Journal, Chris Johnson and Sammy Murphy. The journal celebrates the creative culture of Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole. They've stopped by Amidori House. Chris and I, we used to work in London, so we've had over probably about 10 years' experience in the design industry, having worked with a wealth of clients, including you know, BBC, Bartley's, Yo Sushi. For me, I cut my teeth at the Sunday Times when I first started working in London. I always had a love for print. I've always loved editorial design. And for me, I really struggled with working with house brands because they choose the font, they choose the colours, and you really struggle to have your own creative expression with it. So it's always been my dream to run my own magazine. Yeah, after 10 years in London, the pandemic hit and got made redundant and it really made us really rethink our journey and it's always been a dream of ours to go out on our own and we thought we'd just take the jump, move down to the coast, start off a mag, start off a design studio, be poor for a little while but enjoy the journey on its way. I think it's definitely, uh, we have a love for design, don't we? We have a big passion for it and for us that's sort of been a big driving force for this big change. And Chris, you're both actually not from the area, right? I mean, uh, especially yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, I'm, from... I'm originally from Manly, so Sydney in Australia. Yeah. What made you move uh, there? I mean, besides the reasons that Sammy <laughs> mentioned. <laughs> For me, like, it's always been a dream. Like, I've been coming to England since I was a kid. My grandparents lived here. And yeah, I guess it's just kind of that nostalgia kind of built up over the years. And then the design industry here is is a bit of a behemoth, so it's always kind of been a dream working in design to come over. And yeah, my brother and sister live here, got a lot of family, so... Yeah, it's just kind of always drawn me, I guess. I grew up surfing, so it's been a bit of a kind of adjustment getting used to not having that coastal lifestyle, I think. You can surf there, I guess. Yeah, you can surf in Bournemouth. When when we're living in London, not so much. But yeah, down in Bournemouth, yeah, we get waves. But tell us about Peer Journal. One, One of the things that I find fascinating is that, I mean, there's so many interesting entrepreneurs there, kind of mm. cultural life, the food scene there as well. Yeah. And and I, I think many people don't know. I mean, I, I don't know, but it's good. I'll keep this issue for next time I go, as I said. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think for us, when we were leaving London, it's between the three Bs, so Bournemouth, Brighton and Bristol. We really wanted to move Mm. somewhere that still was a cultural creative hub. And what we liked about Bournemouth, it was on that trajectory up. When we went there, there was all these amazing things happening, but it weren't, no one's really shouting about it. It was, it was very understated. Yeah, there's quite a few design studios down there which are producing decent work. So yeah. we're like quite interested moving down there. And exactly. Then, and yeah. I, th- I think for us, yeah, we could get to London in under two hours. So for us, it's like nice <laughs> to have London on our doorstep still. I think our heart will always be in the city. But yeah, we just love the area. And I think 
with the magazine, it's almost our love letter to the area and celebrate the area we're lucky enough to call home. We really, um, we're conscious that we're new coming in and I don't think a lot of people like Londoners coming in and changing (laughs) things, do they? Um, But for us, it's like, it's just a celebration of the people that are already there. That's all we're doing. Mm. It's a community journal, first and foremost. We celebrate all the makers, the creators, the businesses, all showcase all the creative talent there and really really position it as a destination where people and businesses can thrive so it's not just small indie businesses but also big businesses so like Lush, Gosney, Dorsetty, some big businesses have their headquarters there so it's just nice to sort of celebrate the small wins and the big wins we just feel so passionate about it and we really want to foster that cultural growth so it could compete with Brighton and Bristol one day. I think it should, you know, and uh, and Chris, I was going to ask as well, the magazine is free. Do you guys have a business model? I know, of course, you have the design studio, but how does it work in that sense? Uh, And and where can people actually grab a copy as well? Because I'm sure there'll be people interested. Where can I find it? So we have a list of stockists on our Instagram where people can go to. It's mainly cafes, restaurants, that sort of thing. But the reasoning for us producing it for free was to keep it inclusive. So we wanted anyone to be able to read this, pick this up, um, encourage people to get out there, go to these different restaurants and cafes and kind of really explore the culture of Bournemouth. And yeah, I mean, business model wise, our business background isn't that um, That's where we failed a bit, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think we got, we got the design down, we the try. business model not we, so much. We had the idea, I think, which a lot of people tell us it's best to have the idea first and then you kind of build the business behind yeah. it. And we're getting there, to be fair. like It is developing and I think a lot of businesses are getting behind us, which is great. Yeah. We've just recently received a grant from the council, which is fantastic. I think um, for us, it's like we've been going for over a year now. It's like, look what we could do without your help. Think what we could do with it. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> And Sammy, I was going to ask, I mean, design-wise, of course, the magazine is very well designed. I love the cover. Can you describe? It's kind of an illustration, very, I mean, I know it's the autumn issue, but it feels to me quite summery as well. I I really enjoyed that. So I always found um, autumn in Bournemouth is like summer, isn't it? Mm, It's it's beautiful. So many long, beautiful days, really hazy, isn't it? So that's why it feels quite summery. But for us, first and foremost, we really want to retain a lot of the talent that comes out of the universities in Bournemouth. So a lot of our covers are designed by... AUB Art University Bournemouth graduates. This one is just a, a great celebration of just the coastal, I guess the beauty of the coast. Uh, I think with Pier, we always try and show we're more than just a beach. It's not just coming down and get your, you know, your fish and chips and <laughs> sit on the pier. It's like go for walks along the Jurassic Coast, you know, discover yeah. all these. You got the new forest. It's yeah, yeah, just so diverse down there, their environment. And I think that kind of drew us as well. Like, you have the kind of the cultural thing, but then lifestyle in Bournemouth is just so vibrant. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's a nice mix. I guess we tried to reflect that in the cover. Yeah. Yeah. A question for both of you as well, because I was looking at your Instagram page. It feels to me that you also do quite a lot of events. I know there's one coming up. Yeah, we've November, been dipping right? our toe in there, haven't we? Yeah, because um, I love hosting. I love having mm. friends around for drinks <laughs> and food. It comes naturally to me. And uh, we just sat down one day and we said, oh, why don't we do like a launch party with each issue? So each issue we sort of hire a pub out, don't we? But with yeah. this upcoming Christmas one, we've decided we're going to go big. Go big or go home, that's what I say. And we've got Conquer Gin Distillery have kindly have lent us their space and we're doing a big winter social. So we've got live music, we've got um, 
Christmas market going on, yeah. so lots of makers from the magazine are going to be there. Exactly. We and... love a Christmas market here in Monaco. <laughs> so... <laughs> and really just celebrate the best of the area and you really try and um, yeah, showcase a lot of people we feature in the magazine. And that's what people love about our launch parties. It's like networking, but not so stuffy. It's like all these creative people under one yeah. roof and it's so nice because a lot of people say, I didn't know there were so many creatives in the area, but they're all here that it's just joining the dots a bit because we found with Form of Christchurch and Paul, we really wanted to unite the area and try and get that freedom of movement between the three areas because like, for us in London, like we lived in East London, we were always hopping on the tube down to South London to see your friends, didn't we? Yeah, always travelling around. Always <laughs> travelling. Whereas in, in Bournemouth, it's so funny. People are so... They'd stay in their mm. area and you're like, well, have you not tried out this amazing restaurant that's just popped up? And then suddenly people are discovering yeah. uh, new things on their doorstep. And we got chatting to this local guy, lovely guy, um, Timo, and he said um, he's been living in the area all his life and it took two newcomers to really actually open his eyes and see what is in this area. And it's it's such a wonderful thing to hear, just to know that you're getting people out their comfort zones and getting people discovering new things because that's the whole point of the magazine is to try and get those money to those independent businesses after lockdown we really wanted to help the high street you know yeah, regenerate back to what it was before five again yeah and just really give back to the area amazing and my final question to you guys is what do you think about the regional press here in the uk of course you don't need to give me like a, a proper analysis but i wonder because there's been a lot of bad news kind of oh some uh, local newspapers are closing down but there are good stuff where the manchester mill recently here on the stack yeah. where now we have imperial journal so that, that i mean we, we have to be optimistic about yeah it, right? there's quite a few magazines popping mm. up like there's a new one in bristol that's going to be popping up soon there's a new long border surfing magazine that's just mm. popped up in cornwall so i think it is kind of on the up now i think it did go through a bit of a dip mm. probably post COVID. Yeah, I find as I think, I think people love pricks. It cuts through the noise. It's easy to be quite overwhelmed with digital. You're being shouted at a lot, aren't you? So yeah. it's something quite nice about because that's why we call it a journal rather than a magazine. Like it's something that you could just sit on your shelf you could lend to friends yeah. it's a nice perfect bound magazine that you keep we didn't want it to be too disposable that's kind of because mm. like print itself it's not the most sustainable yeah. form of media but if you produce something which is beautiful and people are gonna kind of keep on their bookshelf share with their friends that sort of thing that was kind of the aim yeah year. i think for us we really um if you're gonna do print do print properly that's what i say i think you get so many leaflets and so many like it's just really bad design out there. It's like, if you're going to do it, do it so that it will just, I don't know, stand the test of time a bit. Yeah. It, you know, it celebrates people and community and culture. And I think that's why a lot more magazines are popping up. So people are starting to see that's for us. Like if we started a website celebrating the area, no one would know about us. It takes a physical magazine in your hands to form that connection with you and cut through that noise hmm. and really start that sort of build that trust with that customer and really make them feel seen and heard a free magazine is available to everyone and i think it's important to us to really celebrate that thank you very much sammy and chris you can grab a copy of peer journal with their many stockists which you can find at peerjournal.co.uk and that's it for this week's show my thanks to our editor jack jewers if you have any comments or queries feel free to write to me fernando at fpandmonaco.com and remember, we're back next Saturday. Meanwhile, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. Britney Spears, Dear Diary. 
You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.